Trigger warning for this episode, this episode contains themes of disordered eating, suicidal ideation, and addiction. I am sitting here in my bedroom with my little mic set up, and I've got my cute dog on the bed and my cat in her little basket, and I'm just grounding myself because I've been really nervous about this. Um... I realized in talking to my life coach yesterday that I have been holding back in the podcast and um, I'm not shaming myself for it in the sense that, uh, you know, basically I just, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to be fully authentic in sharing all of my story when it comes to Uh, sex and dating and sex work and um, being a sugar baby the last year. And, you know, I'm not being hard on myself for the fact that I haven't shared more as it is really feeling like it is time for me to be authentic. And I'm actually recording today. I'm recording with Ayla and Asriel Blackwolf today. And honestly, I've been thinking so much about recording this solo episode and the universe has just kind of put it all in front of me in the sense that um, my first guest, Ayla, today is a sex worker and I really admire her for how she's showing up and shifting the narrative around sex work and I realized that it feels inauthentic to not be fully expressed in sharing that I've done Um, what somebody recently called sex work light. So doing uh, sugar baby stuff, which I'm honestly excited to share that world with you guys and what I learned doing that. Um, But you know, this is stretchy for me to talk about all of this. But that is, in essence, also why I started sex talk radio. I felt like the conversations I wanted to be hearing around sex and sex positivity and people involved in the sex space professionally, I feel like I couldn't find them all in one place. And I've really made it my mission to highlight and uplift people who I admire greatly in in the world of sex and kink and pleasure. And, um, you know, moving forward with the podcast, it's my intention to um, be more fully expressed in this. And also, I think that you know, something I was also talking to my coach about yesterday is the people that I truly admire in this space, in the sex and kink space, are people that are really confident with their stories and confident with everything that they've been through and sharing that. And, you know, we also don't know how confident someone might be. Some people can really uh, put on a good face with that, but I admire that in people. And, you know, I'll tell you guys a bit more about myself and my story, but what I've realized is that my superpower just as a human is sharing vulnerably and sharing what I'm going through in real time, not when it's complete, not when it's done, not when it's healed, um, but sharing it in real time. So as many as some of you know, more like my friends know, um, I experienced a really rough financial chapter last year due to what I would consider a spending addiction. Um, and you know, what I did is I started sharing about it and I started sharing about it on TikTok because TikTok felt like a really safe space for me to 
share without, you know, the hodgepodge and decade of weird high school friends and weird people I know on Instagram. TikTok is the safe space if you adjust your contact settings so no one can find you. It's a safe space to just to just share. And on TikTok, vulnerability is rewarded. And um, if you don't know, I actually do TikTok coaching and help people go viral. And my, I don't use trends. I don't use hacks. I, I use vulnerability and authenticity. And so I started sharing about my money healing journey last year on TikTok because it was just so raw and real and I was in it. And I was at, you know, ground zero with my therapist trying to say, okay, what can I sell so that I can pay my bills and pay my rent? You know, meanwhile, I'm making $100,000 a year. And so where I'm going with this is my superpower across multiple niches is generally always been vulnerability. And, you know, I can share the highlight reels on my personal Instagram account of successes and business ventures I've been a part of. But at the end of the day, what what creates connection with another human, even if it's just in the DMs of Instagram, what creates connection is saying, actually, hey, this isn't just all rainbows and butterflies over here. I had a really hard day with business or this happened or I lost this money. Like not necessarily just the negative creates connection, but authenticity creates connection. And so... Um, you know, I think part of my mission here with Sex Talk Radio is to uh, create a safe space for people to explore sex and kink and desire and their passion and their sexuality. Um, and in turn, you know, I'm, I'm doing that for myself. I am pretty new on this journey in retrospect. Um, I've been very sexual my whole life. I've had sex with a lot of people in my 20s, but in terms of being out and sharing about this, it continues to be a stretch for me. I mean, um, you know, I was shaking so nervous the first podcast I recorded, and it might not come across that way, but I was extremely nervous. I mean, I was sharing this side of myself and the world with the world that very few people knew about me. And, um, you know, a big concern of mine was not being taken as seriously. I have had two companies, I've sold two businesses, um, I've done a lot of really cool stuff in my life. And, you know, I've had certain encounters in my dating life where I'm kind of instantly put in this category. um, Because, oh, she's got a sex and kink podcast, she must want to fuck on the first date. Or there's like, you know, it's, it's a shock to people when they realize I've had a company and sold one before, because, you know, she, she has a sex podcast. And maybe I'm, projecting some of these stories on other people. But the reality is, is that anything that is taboo, there is going to be a stigma, there is going to be judgment. And I was really nervous and scared to jump into the podcast. Um, It was outing myself in this way. And, you know, it has been difficult on certain familial relationships. Um, But you know, the, the thing is, is I saw a gap, I saw something missing. I fucking went for it and I'm doing it and it's it's hard and as an entrepreneur if something is not consistently stimulating and if there aren't challenges in something most entrepreneurial minds are going to get bored or going to get um, 
over an idea or a project. And so for me, sitting down to record this, I'm still trying to justify why I'm recording this. <laughs> Just giving context, you guys. Um, for me, sitting down and recording this feels like the next stretch of my evolution as a advocate and person in the sex and kink positive space. Um, and, you know, powerful things are not supposed to feel comfy. Powerful things are not supposed to feel like, oh, just another day at the office. Um, and even going into record today, I've got a lot of nerves because I'm, I'm really impressed and excited about the people I'm talking to. And I know it's going to require a version of me to show up in that studio today that is different than who's showed up before. And I'm, I'm open to it and I'm, I'm, I'm willing and I'm ready. Um, and it's exciting. I mean, at the end of the day, like I'm starting to monetize the podcast now, but this was started from a place of what the fuck people need to be hearing these conversations and we need to be illuminating and highlighting people in the space that are just fucking badasses um, and sharing their stories. So I'm going to give you my little life story now. I am 31 years old. I was born in Juneau, Alaska. My mom is from Lubbock, Texas, and now I live in Austin. Um, so it's funny that I've, I've come back to the Texan homeland. She was a little bit shocked by that. Uh, we're a very liberal family. <laughs> she was like, oh boy, going back to Texas. Um, mom is from Texas. My dad is from Minnesota. And when they were very young, um, they both found their way in up to Alaska. So my mom was with a friend in California at the time, and she decided to go spend a summer up in Juneau. And my dad was very, it was very into the wild. If you've read the book or seen the movie, that was literally him. He hitchhiked up to Alaska at a very young age after high school and just wanted to get out and get away. And um, he's still like that. He still hates cities and crowds and people <laughs> and his like homeostasis his neutrality is in nature and um, yeah, like he would love nothing more than to be camping alone in nature. And so I've definitely taken some of that from him. So the story goes that uh, my mom went to look at an apartment that he was moving out of, I guess. And they started talking, there was a spark and she saw an Alan Watts book on his shelf, which apparently is what it takes to set a hippie gal over the edge and say, let's get it on. <laughs> so I mean, I get it, though. I'm I'm the same. I, there's a quote, if, if the guy doesn't have books on his shelf, don't fuck him or something. Um, and I get it. Uh, intellectual tendencies are erotic. <laughs> and so um, I'm not entirely sure what transpired next. My intuition is that things happened pretty fast. And um, they got married and I came along nine months, well, not nine months after they met, but I think it was a tight, a tight timeline. Um, when I was three years old, my mom and dad and I road tripped from Juneau, Alaska to uh, Ashland, Oregon. So my mom wanted to go to nursing school and we all took a little voyage down there. I started preschool. Um, and then my parents split within that year, I believe, within a year of us moving to Ashland, Oregon. And, you know, it wasn't nasty. It wasn't a 
chaotic. It, it was very, um, you know, one, my mom outgrew my, my dad on a, in an emotional intelligence sense is what I believe happened. And they, um, separated. And so, you know, growing up, it was pretty normal for me to just spend every other weekend with my dad. I was primarily at home with my mom, um, but would go to my dad's every once in a while. And he always lived in these really beautiful places out in nature. For many years, he lived in a trailer, like out in the mountains in the woods. And so my memory wasn't really of being in the tiny little trailer, but um, of playing in the woods and building forts and I just grew up very alternatively in the sense that, um, I don't know, my parents really wanted, uh, they had a vision for me of living an alternative life in terms of how I was schooled and how I connected with others. And I think it's really shown it, it, it in who I am, like how I was raised. And I'll talk more about the elementary school I went to is, is related to who I am now. And so, um, my mom met my stepdad when I was around five years old. And so that became a large, um, person in my life, uh, kind of had two dads in that sense. And they were together until I was 11. Um, and we left him when I was 11. I'm not going to go into why, but we did. And, um, I'll, I'll get to that in my, in my trajectory here, but so around five, six or so I started elementary school and I went to a school called the blenders. It was a first through fifth grade, um, classroom thing. So there were, there were two classrooms. There were the youngers and the elders, the youngers were the first and second graders. The elders were the third, fourth, and fifth. And this is not like a replicable thing. Like they don't have this in other places. It was two teachers that came together that wanted to do something different. And it was fucking epic. So you're really learning how to learn from people that are a few years older than you. You're learning how to teach other people. You're learning how to lead groups. I think it's where a lot of my leadership skills came from. Um, I feel like this was when school funding was still pretty legit and we all had like MacBooks and computers. And this was like, you know, way back late nineties, 1990, eight, nine, I don't know. And so we got our hands on technology and group projects and community. And, you know, once a year, the entire school, the entire blenders group, maybe 50 kids would go camping in the redwood forest with their parents. And it was just so so alternative. Um, I would say it wasn't like spiritual. It was a very like liberal spiritual community that we were in, but it, that wasn't like the basis of the classroom and of the blenders. Um, but I just think it gave me this really unique foundation of creative thinking and creative problem solving instead of, you know, textbook, homework, um, the kind of more traditional school, which I will also share later on that that was really difficult for me when I did try to do real normal school. Um, so the blenders was first through fifth grade and, um, 
yeah, I just, I, from an outside perspective, from what my parents have shared, I was definitely one of the little, the little team leaders and, and loved taking initiative and, uh, being controlling. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a really, it was a really amazing experience. And so during this time, like towards the end of elementary school, my dad was really um, missing Alaska, and he decided to um, move back to Alaska. And, um, oh, I'm going to actually go back a little bit. Let's talk about some trauma. Okay. So <laughs> when I was like seven, eight, nine, I had a ton of anger. And I think it had to do with some jealousy around like wanting more of my mom, um, feeling like maybe. Uh, I didn't have her full undivided attention. Um, and then I think it was also just uh, potentially some early signs of some neurospicy stuff. So I was diagnosed in the last year with ADHD. And I realize now that that, I believe, has been around since I was very, very little. Um, a lot of hyperactivity and needing constant stimulation and um, also just being somebody with generalized anxiety disorder, very anxious child. So I think those things together made it so that I felt like I had a lot of unmet emotional needs, even though um, my mom is an incredible fucking mom and was. Um, there was something in me at that age that felt very not seen and heard. And so I started acting out at night. And it's interesting how childhood trauma plays into who we are now because I still struggle with nighttime stuff. Like I, I struggle with uh, boredom and antsiness and kind of this anxiety at night still to this day. Um, for many years, I would numb that with alcohol. But there's something about evenings that have been difficult me difficult for me since I was a little kid. And so... I was acting out a lot at night, um, from what I recall, screaming, uh, crying, slamming on the door, wanting attention, having a list of things that I needed. I need water, I need a cold washcloth, I need all of these things. And um, really just like almost testing to see how much like my um, parents loved me, uh, which is also interesting and something I see now as a connection of like, I've noticed a pattern within myself where I test people to see how much they love me as well, which is not healthy. Um, but you know, hey, first step is is awareness, and much of that pattern patterning, you know, goes back to childhood trauma. And so, um, I was acting out a lot at night. I remember going to see a psychiatrist or something of the sort, and basically, this psychiatrist and I don't know why told my parents that if I continue to act out and that it, if it continues to seem out of control, um, that they should call the police and that the police should come to my house and, um, you know, for lack of a better word, scare me, scare me straight uh, and scare me into, um, you know, uh, yeah, scare me into acting better. And obviously that wasn't what the, the psych psychiatrist said or what my parents thought was happening. Um, but that was definitely like the impact and the result it had. So uh, one night when I was about nine, um, I was acting out and very out of control and angry and scared. And um, they called the police. And I, you know, remember having like literally having my doll and sitting in my bunk bed that had like a desk underneath it and sitting up there and two police officers walked in. I think one was a man and one was a woman. And it was kind of just like, hey, 
um, your parents called us and we know you've been acting out. And I mean, I don't know what they said. It was such a trauma for me, but it, it was basically like, get it together. And what I took from it was like, don't let this happen again. Or, um, you know, I'd like heard of juvie, I'd heard of kids like going to juvie. So I think in my mind, there was this fear of like, getting taken away from my parents or getting sent away. Um, and so I remember going to school the next day. And I, I remember looking at a whiteboard. Um, and I, I mean, that was, I think, where a big uh, chapter of or, or my anxiety developed. Um, like I remember feeling anxiety in my body that day for what was maybe the first time that I, I can remember it in that heightened sense. And I remember looking at this bulletin board and um, telling myself that I needed to pretend to be okay. That even if I was angry or sad or hurting uh, or wanting to cause a scene, I remember telling myself in order to not get taken away, in order to not get in trouble, you're going to need to pretend to be good um, and pretend to be kind of sane. And so, you know, the the police calling had the desired effect for me um, or for my parents in terms of me uh, being a good girl. And the reason I share this story is as I've explored kink and BDSM and power dynamics, I see why it's become so healing for me to be called I'm be called a good girl or be told I'm doing a great job or um, be told I'm naughty but then praised afterwards. Or there are these certain things that I've explored in the kink realm that I see are actually as these healing components to um, going through childhood thinking that I was bad, naughty, in trouble, a bad girl. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a lot of unwiring and reworking, but, um, you know, I would, I would say that in a more traditional trauma sense, I've had more traumatic things happen than that. But when I look at personal development and healing work that I am doing and have done, like, it, it always comes back to that night and that transition of unprocessed emotions and rage and not having channels and not understanding what was going on and wanting attention to the next day shutting down and telling myself that I am bad and that I need to pretend that everything is okay forever so that I don't get in trouble or get taken away. And so, you know, while I also don't want to ever be someone that lives in a victim mindset or, or is stuck in, in my trauma defining my life, I think that it's also really important to see the correlations and see the connections between all of these things in our, in our younger years. So that happened when I was about nine. And then two years later or so, um, my dad decided he wanted to move back to Alaska. He was craving the wilderness and just the life there. So he actually moved back up to Alaska to Anchorage. And my mom and stepdad at the time, um, I'll, I'll never forget, they were trying to decide between taking their honeymoon in Hawaii or Alaska. And they decided on Alaska. And they went to a little town called Homer. Um, and they fell in love with it. It is honestly, if you Google Homer, Alaska, it is really one of the most beautiful, beautiful places ever. Um, 
And so shortly thereafter, we moved to Homer, Alaska with my dad following my mom and stepdad and I down there uh, shortly after. Um, I tried to do normal school. (laughs) I went to West Homer Elementary School for like, I don't know, a few weeks and it literally like did not work. It did not, um, you know, the textbooks and the Pledge of Allegiance and the rigid rigidity and the structure, it felt so foreign and alien to me and um, it just didn't work. And so for a little while I did this like half homeschool program. I literally was in school with a yurt with other kids. And then for a little while I did homeschooling with my mom. Um, and, and we were still really new there and just starting to make uh, community and develop relationships and friendships. And then we um, very abruptly, uh, not really knowing anyone, we left my stepdad and we um, kind of had to start from scratch. We moved into a trailer 12 miles out uh, this crazy Alaskan road because it was what we could afford. Um, my mom had stopped working and was doing volunteer work. And so she had to go out into the world and, um, and she went and had to get a job and it was just a very abrupt change. And it was confusing to me because I really didn't have the context and I didn't really have the context for what happened until many years later. Um, and so then after a little bit of homeschooling and my mom and I really just becoming very, very close and very, um, emotionally close just with all that we were going through um it was a challenging time but I was you know eager and excited to get into kind of the real world of middle school and high school so middle school nothing really to report there um I had my first kiss I think was that middle school no it was high school went to high school my graduating class when I graduated was about 80 people so you know really really small town small Alaskan town stuff here we're talking about so high school um had my first you know boyfriend and crush and all of those things in high school um I think it was honestly, it was my sophomore year of high school that I realized I wanted out. I wanted to get the heck out. I wanted bigger, more exciting things. I was ready for college and learning and, and just, um, ready for different, which is honestly a pattern of my life. (laughs) Um, getting, having there be urgency and being excited and starting new chapters. So Sophomore year of high school, I started prepping to graduate early, and I actually graduated high school my junior year, so I actually started college a whole year early because of how eager I was to get out of there. Um, There was, uh, I, I lost my virginity to when I was 16, it was to my boyfriend, it was very wholesome, it was very cute, we like did it and then we went and laid under the the stars and the snow it was very Alaskan um and you know I I do remember from a very young age being aroused by sensual or sexual scenes in movies and just like so I was so excited to have sex I was so excited to do it um and I had this like funny fantasy that I was like if I was ever on a plane and it was like started to go down and I was still a virgin like I would I would fuck someone because <laughs> I was just like, I was so excited to experience what it was like. And oh man, it was going to be just like how it, it was going to be how, 
it's gonna it was gonna feel how it looked in the movies and then so you know looking back on it it was cute but like I remember being very disappointed and kind of like that didn't feel great it kind of hurt I I don't think I was looking like the girls in the movies I wasn't very happy about that so it's just kind of this big like oh you know and then it wasn't even until I was 19 I believe 19 and a half or so that I actually had my first orgasm so you know for many people of that age teenagers that are sexually active they're not the the females the women they're not having orgasms and um that can be challenging for us when so there is so much sexual energy in that high school age and era and so to not be able to like to to not have experienced that pleasure um is tricky because you know so much of what we see in the movies and in porn is all about the man's ejaculation and his orgasm and that's that is the the focus, the main part of the video or whatever you're watching. So, um, yeah, not a whole lot to report in high school. I uh, temporarily got unaccepted to college. It was this whole debacle because of like one credit. And the night I found out about that, um, that I got unaccepted, um, I drank two Four Locos and ended up like blacked out, hand delivered to my mom that night. Um, and, you know, prior to that, uh, something about being in a small fishing town is a lot of, a lot of the guy friends I was hanging out with, um, were getting into drugs. And so the kind of routine in, in, uh, Alaska is for many of the young men to fish in the summers. And so these, you know, these guys who are 15, 16 years old would go out and make 50 grand in a summer or more. And so, drugs just became really uh, rampant in um, the town I was in, the community I was in. And it seemed to change. So like it went from my guy friends smoking weed to like my guy friends doing pills. And then I wasn't even really aware of it until after I left, but they had gotten even into harder stuff like heroin. And people were overdosing in my town. Like it was, it was bad. And I think that my mom saw that and also just like really supported and wanted me to get out. Um, I... I wasn't aware of it. I didn't have that gauge on, oh, this person is high on drugs. Um, and so, you know, I'm really happy that she she motivated me and, or, and she supported me in my desire to leave. But, you know, what I will say about that night is that... Um, is that 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 laid this almost this foundation of big bad things happen or big things happen and getting drunk provides relief. So that was, you know, looking back on it, uh, some kind of foundational thing there. Um, so I went off to college, age 17. I'd never visited Humboldt County, which is in rural Northern California. For those of you that don't know, um, what I like to say, and I believe this is true, hopefully, is that uh, Humboldt County and the two neighboring counties, they call it the Emerald Triangle. Um, and at one point, you know, in the heyday, they were producing like over 80% of the cannabis that is uh, smoked and consumed in the United States. And so um, that is the main industry or was the main industry in that region. I smoked a ton of weed in high school and I was super excited to go to go smoke more weed. Um, so I moved into the dorms and uh, moved in with a gal who I'm still good friends with to this day. And man, we both had like a lot of pent up like fuck you so over being 
told what to do or how to live by our parents. We both had this pent up like energy and we were just wild. Like the first time I ever did Molly was that first weekend when our parents were literally still there to drop us off. We partied all night. Um, She was from LA. So she had a little bit more like um, she'd been to Coachella, which I thought was so cool. She just had more like real life fucking experience instead of like, as opposed to a, you know, teenager from Alaska. And so we went hard. I mean, it's so funny looking back on it. Like there was like a photo of a bunch of full booze or empty booze bottles in a trash can in our dorm. And I like, I posted that photo to Facebook at one point. Like this is a bragging point. Like look at how much we drink, look at how hard we party. And, um, you know, I think that's the tricky thing about college and people that are literally fucking teenagers is that it's just kind of ass backwards. Like I was a creative and an academic and, but I was going through like the big party phase and the big like rebellion against the parents. And it was just a really intense year. Um, My freshman year, I did a lot of drugs. And I thought it was I thought I was having the best year of my entire life. But looking back on it it was actually really dark. Um, It literally rained like 75% of that first year that I was there. It it was dark and depressive. And there were what I now see as like lots of drug come downs and alcohol come downs and binge eating. Um, And it, it was like, I just went really hard with partying and it set this it it set me up for learning how to socialize and be social literally through alcohol. I had never gone to big parties or events or anything like that in Alaska and so it taught me that this is how you kill your social anxiety. You take a couple shots, you pregame. Um and you know, that's that's tricky. That's hard to rework and unwire. I'm going to flash forward a little bit and get more to the good stuff. So I, um, during this time while drinking was becoming a very habitual thing, so was sleeping with people and sleeping with people very intoxicated. And I'm really lucky that, um, you know, nothing super bad ever happened. Uh, trigger warning, I did experience what I would consider a sexual assault when I was studying abroad and living in uh, Chile and South America. Um, and have had some like, you know, less than desirable experiences just exploring kink here in Austin. But, um, you know, I am really I do feel very lucky for making it out of some of the situations that I did okay. Um, And thankful that even extremely intoxicated that I had a good enough intuition to uh, connect and be intimate with people that didn't that didn't harm me. But um, in college, this this cycle and this pattern started happening of, you know, alcohol to numb social anxiety and um, casual sex and one night stands to kind of like outsource validation and get out and get validation from men in this way. Um, And, you know, those patterns can become really deep. And so Um, I graduated college and it was my senior year of college that I decided to join the entrepreneurship club. And I, uh, was an international relations major and I mostly did that literally so I could go live in Chile and study abroad and party. Um, but my senior year of college, when I returned, I was like, I am meant to be an entrepreneur. Like I have a knack for this. I've been creating ideas and building businesses since I was a kid. I was doing, you know, uh, babysitting posters and business cards. And I just loved all of that shit. When I was a kid, I would play store. That was the thing. I wanted a cash register so I could 
type out fucking receipts. Like I just wanted to make money and I wanted to hustle. And so um, joining the entrepreneurship club really changed my life. We went on a road trip, like a 12 hour road trip to Seattle to go to the startup weekend. And I pitched an idea and it took off like in the, in the context of the weekend. And I just like got my bearings um, and started to realize who I was, which was a very entrepreneurial creative person. I didn't want to change my major. I would have had to stay another year. But so after college, what I realized were there were these two kind of pathways in front of me, which was, um, you know, move to Southern California or to Northern. Uh, I was looking at Santa Cruz and Santa Barbara and, you know, move and like try to start a business or get a job. And then this other part of me, this like humanitarian um, empath part of me was like, I want to save the world. I want to look into nonprofits. I want to like get in, get in at the ground level. And so I went and I lived in a hut in Nepal for three months out of Kathmandu. And it was super fucking crazy. It was really hard. And about a month into it, I started uh, vomiting and shitting myself for lack of better words and got very ill from a parasite. Um, a lot, anybody that honestly wasn't Nepalese over there got very, very ill at some point. Um, but not as sick as I did. And so, I mean, I, I felt like I was literally dying. My body felt like it was dying. I couldn't keep anything down. The only thing I could eat, like that I could even, f that even sounded edible was like sugar or carbs, which was probably something to do with the parasite eating that. I don't know, but I was very, very ill. And so my second month there, I, I mean, I was sick the entire time and my little host family was very worried about me and I just felt like I was at war with my body and it was super scary. And I had this whole eat, pray, love tour thing like planned out. Like I was supposed to go to all of the countries in Asia after. Um, and so when the time came uh, for me to leave Nepal, I just, um, I just kind of buckled down. I stopped vomiting once I left Nepal and like once I wasn't ingesting any of their water or food. Um, but I was so determined. So I ended up travel. I did a little bit of traveling Vietnam, Malaysia, Cambodia by myself. And then I mean, I was in and out of hospitals in these countries. Like I went to a hospital in Vietnam. I just I so 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 badly wanted to be okay and wanted to feel better. Um, and you know, I ended up coming back right before I had my one-way flight to Bali. I, because uh, I was just wanted to stay there for a long time. I came back to the United States and started what became two years of feeling really ill. Um, I was going to see professional doctors at Stanford uh, University, and I, I just nobody could figure anything out. The best that they could deduce was that because of how much the parasite ravished my body. Um, that I just had post-infectious disease symptoms and they manifested as 24-7 headaches for me. So I, you know, became very depressed um, and uh, was also in kind of an unhealthy relationship during this time and a very unhealthy relationship. And it was just a really dark, a dark chapter. But the light that came out of it was that even when I was as early as being in Nepal, I was starting to think about business ideas. I was starting to realize that, you know, the way I'd been paying my way through college, which was trimming pot on a pot farm, um, I had this view into this world that was growing. So cannabis was um, 
medically legal and it was on its way to becoming recreationally legal. And so I saw a huge opportunity in the market. My mom is a total hippie, loves aromatherapy and making stuff. And so I was really inspired by her. And so during this era, this two-year era of feeling like headaches and low energy and depressed, I started formulating and building what became a Humble Flower, which was my first company. So I basically built and scaled a cannabis company from 2016 to 2019. And it was randomly getting a bunch of medical Botox for my headaches numbed or like dulled the symptoms enough um, of these recurring headaches that uh, they never came back. And so that was fucking incredible that I got relief from that. Um, And, you know, jumping forward a little bit, I moved to LA, the company was blowing up as cannabis became legal. And um, yeah, I it was just, it was an incredible and painful and, and just wild learning curve. Not only was I building a company at 25, but I was building one in the most regulated industry, like truly in in the world, uh, not in the world, but like, it, it, I mean, it's, the way it's regulated cannabis is by the FDA and the testing involved is, is so difficult. I had one day uh, years later where I lost $50,000 in a day because there was a little bit of uh, pesticide detected in one of the products that was in my, in my balm that I made. And so learned a lot of really big, brutal, painful lessons with business, but I also really, you know, strengthened a muscle for uh, how to negotiate and how to develop partnerships and how to build and formulate products and brands and all of these things. Um, and it it was just, it was a wild, a wild ride. And so that company was actually acquired, um, in 2019 and the same year it, uh, made an appearance at Kim Kardashian's CBD baby shower. It was in a Saks Fifth Fifth Avenue pop-up. The brand was in anthropology. Um, and it also did a million dollars in revenue that year. So Humble Flower was my, my big adventure and deep dive into business and, You know, for a long time after leaving the parent company, which I did do to start a latte powder company, adaptogenic latte powder company, I kind of felt like I'm never going to do anything as cool as that. The the Kim Kardashian and the the money and all the stuff, like it's never going to happen. It felt kind of like a high. And, you know, I'm really glad to be over that hump now and feel very called to my mission with the podcast and with everything else I'm doing because, um... I do feel like my mission is big and I do feel like I'm capable of creating, you know, really big epic things. Um, Basically I had to go record and I have had like quite the emotional hangover from the experience of all of that. Um, Coming out and talking about doing sex work light as I call it uh, or, you know, doing the sugar baby thing. I, I, talked about that on my episode with Ayla that will come out soon. Um, and yeah, it was just a big, it's a big thing. And I mean, some of you listening might be like, it's not that big of a deal, like whatever. Um, but for me, it's it's an identity thing. Um, because sex work and that kind of stuff has such a stigma. And, you know, my ego wants to be taken very seriously and not judged. But you know what, um, excuse me, <laughs> you know what, at the end of the day, like, it has to always come back to my mission. My mission is more important. So um, going back to where we left off, which was uh, Humble Flower and my company, and I sold it. Um, this was in LA. And 
something that was really missing from my time and experience in LA was like community and true friendship. And this is when my drinking started getting pretty bad. And so my addict mind really found out friendships and people that enabled me in that way. Um, people that were party friends, people that uh, wouldn't judge my drinking. Um, and, you know, I had partied so, so hard in college. Um, I mean, long story short, I literally, uh, God, it was like a reality show, just a little jump back to college. My friends and I met these two guys. Um, I won't say their names, but it was a really fucking awesome life experience. All of us girlfriends, we went and worked on their pot farm and we, like I said, trimmed our way, trimmed weed to pay our way through college, but we partied like fucking rock stars. I mean, drugs, lots of shots, um, pool, hot tub out in the mountains. Like it was just this, at the time, what felt like a very magical, free, um, just, energetically big, <laughs> um, young adult experience. And we were also, my girlfriends and I were also making really good money for being that age. So where I was going with this was just like, we partied really hard. Um, one time we like rented Frank Sinatra's house in LA and went to a rave and there was limos and drugs and like, we just fucking went for it. Um, and this is while during the time where everyone had a lot of money in the cannabis industry. So there was a lot of money to throw around. Uh, however, legalization actually negatively impacted all of those farmers, um, not, not just the ones I worked for, but just the entire industry. So partied really hard. So that was my precedent for partying was like, you go fucking hard, you take shots, you do drugs, you rage. And so going to LA, I didn't know that people just like sipped on a glass of wine or like had a beer with lunch or like, I, in my mind, going out was heavy intoxication and you know you pregame and again going back to an earlier point of like I learned how to socialize and relate to other people through alcohol um so jumping forward back to when I lived in LA um it was just kind of a lonely time and I think that you know as a note I'm I'm an only child and I grew up doing a lot of self-soothing and taking care of myself. Not that my parents weren't around. They were just like my my safety net, my homeostasis, my comfort zone became being alone. And so there has been this like kind of thread of what I feel like is this energy of loneliness throughout my life, which I'm always trying to um, combat and nurture and not necessarily just nurture through like relating to other people, but find that within myself. Um but yeah, I don't know if there's any other only children out there that have felt this like sense of loneliness throughout their life. Shoot me a message because it's it's hard to describe. So there was this loneliness in LA and um, I met my first like long-term adult boyfriend. We matched on Tinder and we just like really jumped into relationships into a relationship very quickly. Um, my drinking at this point in time was not great. Um it was uh, like there just wasn't really moderation, you know, um, and I really tried to bring him along for the ride with me, tried to get him to drink, you know, with me. And he's just he was just is just a chiller like it, he doesn't um, necessarily have a problematic relationship with it. And, um, you know, he made one comment that's like really all it took was like you drink a lot. 
And I was like, whoa, like it, it hit me. And the thing I've learned in life about triggers, if somebody says something to you that quote offends you, it's because there's some truth to it. It's because they're seeing something that you don't want them to see. And yeah, I'll never forget that. I know, you know, those moments in life where you know where you were when somebody says something, that's how it was for me. So from there, we kind of jumped into a conversation about alcohol, my relationship with it, and um, that I'd like to stop drinking. And he had some familial, you know, stuff with that as well. So it triggered him. Um, But yeah, so I started exploring sobriety. And um, we it was very much this like safety comfort relationship and there wasn't like an intense spark or physical attraction or chemistry. And, you know, I regret absolutely fucking nothing. Like he is still to this day, such a good friend of mine and we have such a deep care for each other. Um, and we really endured the pandemic together. Um, and I, I don't know what my life would have looked like if I couldn't, if I, if I had to do that alone, I have a lot of empathy for people that explored the pandemic alone or lived alone. Um, so our relationship was getting pretty serious. We decided to move in together within about six months and, um, you know, the pandemic hit. So I was really thankful at the time that I had some sobriety, you know, under my belt, um, because it, that was hard when the pandemic hit and, Um, yeah, basically, you know, I was still at this time, actually, when the pandemic hit working for the parent company of Humble Flower, but I was starting to like play around with other ideas. I was starting to mix powders and like, uh, like (laughs) mix powders, it sounds sketchy, mix, um, adaptogenic latte powders and like make really yummy matchas with like different ingredients. And I was just starting to play and like get really inspired and creative again, exactly like I did when I started Humble Flower. And so I got furloughed from the parent company um, for a few months. And that was kind of like the beginning of the end there. Um, And so the pandemic was really a unique opportunity for me to have an excuse to not go out and like really embody my sobriety and embody like just staying at home and like just grounding, settling, moving slower, being more patient, um, and then also playing, getting creative. Like I had all these fun little business projects and like I was learning to cook things and pickle things and I was fucking embroidering. It was very uh, domestic. (laughs) And um, then my ex and I moved into, literally it's so random, but we moved into a tiny home on a farm in LA. Uh, Maybe the only people in LA living in that situation, but it was fucking, it was really awesome. Um, it was really awesome to be in nature and learn how to grow things. However, would not recommend living in a tiny house with anyone ever. Um, and you know, for me at that time, sex was this obligatory thing to keep the relationship happening. It was okay. Well, if you just do it once a week and kind of like suck it up, then it will, Um, you won't have to talk about it or explore what's below that. And I had a really, I really wasn't very far in my personal development or self-awareness journey yet. Um, you know, he kind of saw these things where he was like, I don't think you're attracted to me. I don't think there's a, like, this isn't 
here. And he would also say stuff like, I think you need to date somebody that's like entrepreneurial and creative and like, you know, other people can see your shit and your gaps in life so clearly, but I was just really in denial and I was really scared of being on my own again. Um, But yeah, I, towards the end of our relationship, I literally like um, was looking to talk to some different sex therapists because I had completely construed that I, asexual is maybe a bit extreme, but I had construed the story that like my libido was just at zero when in reality I wasn't attracted to him. We didn't have a super intense energetic spark. Um, uh, I mean, I was attracted to him, but like, it wasn't that like ravaging, like there, there's something about meeting on the dating apps and jumping in. Like, I don't know, I'm much more in the flow right now of like wanting to meet somebody and be like, Oh my God, like in person, I want to rip your clothes off and fuck you. Like I want, that's how I want that to feel for my next serious relationship, which is what I want next in life. And so, you know, it's just kind of ironic in retrospect, like me calling these sex therapists to be like, Hey, I'm, I think I'm asexual or like my libido is just at zero. I don't know what to do. And then now having a fucking sex podcast. So like, if you're not sure who you, if you're not sure who you are right now, if you're not, if you think something is like wrong, like, I I don't know. I just want to reiterate to anybody that needs to fucking hear it today. Like so much can change in a couple of years from asexual, uh, depressed, overweight, living in a tiny house in LA, asex, like afraid of the libido thing to sex podcast, living in a city, being financially stable, having amazing animals, like so much can fucking shift in a couple of years. So it was around this time during the pandemic, I was furloughed, um, I started building Adaptology Co, which is a adaptogenic latte powder company that I built. Um, Because I wasn't drinking, I was really exploring like fun beverages and making matcha every day. And I started putting lavender in matcha, and it was just like so delicious. And then I added adaptogenic mushrooms to that powder. And so it was like this healthy, anxiety reducing, yet energizing lavender flavored matcha powder. And um, there were definitely some other brands in the space, but like for me, I am a total branding slut. Like I love making things just gorgeous and glorious. And I mean, I spent thousands of dollars on the photo launch photo shoot for this brand. Like I went all in and it is, it still exists. You can still order it. It is a beautiful fucking brand. Um, I did sell it. And so what happened there was... (sighs) Right before launching the brand, I went to a wedding in Colorado, and uh, it was a family wedding. I had invited my ex-boyfriend, but he was just um, not particularly interested in going. We're very different. Like, I'm so ADHD, stimuli, travel the world, new experiences, and he was not. And it, I really am now very clear with the relationship that I'm calling in, or like my life partner, that... I want the same level of adventurousness, adventurousness. Um, But basically, so I was at this wedding and it's like, I just love looking back in life. How are these, these, there are these little pivotal moments where like your life fucking changes, but outwardly, it doesn't seem like it's going to be that kind of moment. So I took a photo of my cousin and her husband and then she was like, do you want a photo? And I was like, yeah. And she took a photo of me and I was like, oh, like, he's not here. 
Like this is, this is a disconnect, like something like this is, I want him to be here, but there was no enthusiasm to go. And it was just this moment where I was like, whoa, um, something just shifted. And so later that night, I stayed up like basically the entire night before my cousin's wedding. And I was just like, (laughs) I was literally in this hotel room in the middle of the mountains in Colorado, just like screaming, like not screaming, saying just like fuck over and over again because it became so, so, so crystal clear that the relationship was not serving me and it was actually harming him as well. Like I was not authentic in it and it it, it was, it just became so clear that the relationship needed to end. Um, but it hit me like a ton of fucking bricks. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a slow buildup because I was so good at lying to myself and being in denial about everything and justifying everything to stay in this relationship that made me feel safe that, you know, I literally would have spent the rest of my life with like, you know, somebody that wasn't compatible for me just because it felt safe. So also, if anybody needed to hear that today, um, please break up with them. (laughs) Uh, You're doing yourself and them a favor. So um, I mean, I'm a go getter. And so literally that day, like after the wedding celebration, I started Googling and I Googled uh, packaged product capital of the world or of the United States and Austin kept popping up and that is just basically like Whole Foods was started here there's a ton of natural food products packaged products um, lots of businesses here for that lots of secondary businesses to support those kinds of businesses and so I had this vision for Adaptology this is prior to launching it I had this vision for it being um, like really big. And I wanted to take it through an accelerator program. And so I found this program called SKU, uh, where, you know, if you get accepted, they connect you with investors, they help you build and scale your packaged product brand. And um, that's basically why I moved to Austin. I just, I, I Googled it and it told me where to go and I fucking did the thing. And my mom is from a small town, conservative, uh, rural, well, not rural, but Lubbock, Texas. And this whole deciding like overnight basically to move my life to Texas without having ever visited Austin was obviously jarring to my family. And my mom and her partner were very close to my ex. And it was a big like um, coming of age moment because it was so not about people pleasing. It was about like truly doing the damn fucking thing that I needed to do, whether or not anyone understood. And so, um, yeah, I, I started texting apartment hunters. This was like all in a 24, 48 hour window while I was in Colorado. I uh, wrote him a letter, like telling him where I was at and sent it. And it was like, it was definitely room to talk. But, um, you know, when I got back, but like at the same time, it was pretty clear that I was that I was done. And so um, I basically got back to our, you know, 200 fucking square foot apartment and was like our tiny house from this trip. And I was thinking like, okay, uh, I'm going to stay a few days or like a week or like I was literally just about to launch Adaptology because like I'll launch the business and then we'll kind of hash it out. No, I walked in to the tiny house and he was like, "We're, we're talking right now. And I was like, fuck. And, and it was done. It was done right then and there. And because it was such a small space, I was like, there's no fucking way I'm staying here. (laughs) I'm not going to stay here. I packed up my shit, which was not a ton, aka tiny house, packed up all of my shit, packed up everything for my storage unit that I needed to launch the company 
and then drove to San Diego and launched Adaptology from my friend's spare bedroom. This was like over the following three weeks, came back up to LA, packed up my shit, booked a one-way ticket to Austin, put my cat on drugs, put her in a carrier, and we, we flew here. And that is my Austin, coming to Austin story. So I'm just taking you guys with me on my, my solo podcasting journey here because I'm really just improvising. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. So um, I'm sharing with you that I'm now back uh, for this third chapter of my solo podcast episode, um, a couple of weeks since the last recording. Um, a pro podcaster wouldn't probably tell you that, but I just feel like it's important in case the energy is different. Uh, I am not sleep deprived and nervous about recording day. Um, I am here on a Saturday and just excited to to wrap this shit up and get to the harder stuff, the more vulnerable stuff. So moved to Austin. Um, I was nervous. It was the first time I'd ever lived on my own and been in sobriety. And so I was kind of worried that I'd want to drink again. So I started going to AA online, which was really nice and connected with an awesome group of women. And I also had about like $100,000 because of the sale of Humble Flower Co., Um, and so there was just this like safety and this like excitement of this new start. I had a ton of, you know, nice new furniture shipped and it just felt like, oh my God, I am a fucking grown up. Um, the first, I'll say six months here felt hard. Uh, it's always hard starting over with like a new social circle And about six, maybe a little bit after six months of moving here, I did this personal development program uh, that I call the cult because it's super fucking culty and it's the most powerful thing I've ever done in my entire fucking life. (laughs) And so um, the trauma bonding that occurs in this cult program is really powerful. And I made a lot of really deep, connected, vulnerable relationships. And it really felt like for the first time in my life, I just had like, yeah, deep connection and friendship. Um, which I was really just very excited about. And honestly, like that laid a foundation of friendship and community uh, that I was able to to take with me after completing the program. Um, and through that program, I met uh, Donna Jean Azriel Blackwolf, who will be on episode 13, I believe it will be. Um, and it was her. One day I was having like a really crappy day. <laughs> And it was probably some boy stuff. And I was sitting at this coffee shop in the evening and I didn't have a very cute outfit on. And she was like, Hey, come to this like play party thing. Like come, come join. And I was like, I don't know. It sounds too scary. I like don't know the vibe. I don't know the people. I don't have a cute outfit on. Like, I don't know. And then she sent me a picture of my now friend's pool and it was super nice and bougie. And I was like, okay, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm enrolled. I'm open-minded. And I went and it was really fucking incredible. I was talking to a friend last night and about our first sex party experiences. For her, it was her first sex party. For me, it was this, which was like not an actual sex like penetration party. It was more of like a somatic touch workshop, like Tantra energy, um, but definitely erotic. And just like how powerful these memories can be when it's your first time seeing stuff like this. And so I remember just, you know, walking into this house and kind of a shitty headspace and it was all these beautiful people and there was like rope there. We did like some tying up stuff. There were these different exercises and a lot of it was like, you know, focused on communication and consent. And it wasn't like, 
it was just so different than I imagined. I think like, and I've mentioned this on the pod before, like in my mind, a play party was like burning man energy and like certain type of person. And it was just like, not, it was just like really pretty people in a really nice house with like feathers and roses and like all these epic things that Leola, the host curated with Azrael Blackwolf. Uh, Leola was on episode two. So the two of them together were hosting this event and it just changed my life. Um, and, you know, just having this glimpse into Azrael Blackwolf's like life of like the kink community um, was so unique. And she's really helped me like spiderweb and branch out. And she's like given me a lot of her people in a way. Like I've just connected with all of these really fucking cool people in Austin. And um, yeah, I don't know. One of the things that I've learned in this whole journey is just that People that are kinky in general are highly emotionally intelligent and smart. And there's something to be said there. So the more I began connecting with people in the kink space and sex space, the more I just felt like I'd found my people and like found a really fun group. Um, so flash forward, um, I finished the program and... Uh, we also tell the story on episode two, but a group of us went out to Fredericksburg outside of Austin and we just had a beautiful celebratory weekend together. We all did ecstasy and like cuddled and just kind of like fell in love and it was really cute. And it just kind of, for me, created some healing and cemented some, some friendships here. And it just felt like one of those things I'll always, I'll always remember. Um, so it was, Around the same time, though, um, I had come into even more money prior that year, which I'm not going to share about, but because um, it's complicated. But there was all of this abundance, and I had poured, you know, over forty thousand dollars into Adaptology Co. through building that brand, and all of a sudden, my money was running out. And for a very, very long time, I'd been in the victim mindset of there's never enough. And I had this unhealthy relationship with money from trimming cannabis where I could literally go up on the weekend or anytime and, you know, make 500 bucks a day. So there was this ingrained pattern in me that if I was out of money, I could always go make more. And so as my bank accounts dwindled, I had this trip planned to Mexico for my 30th birthday last year. This was literally fucking last year. So much has happened, you guys. Um, I had all this excitement. I was so excited to go to Mexico. And it just, it started to hit a rock bottom. And I was in this mindset that it was outside of me, that something kept happening to me that was outside of me that made it so I ended up in these shitty financial situations. And for, I don't know, you know, the millionth time, uh, I asked my mom and her partner, if I could borrow some money. And these were never small chunks of money because that's a thing is like more money, more problems. It's kind of fucking true. When you are playing a big game with a business that where tens of thousands of dollars are involved and you have thousands of dollars a month in business expenses, you don't go ask your mom to borrow a few hundred dollars. You go to ask them to buy 10,000 or to borrow like 10 or $20,000. And Every time I would ask to borrow money, there was a lot of shame there. And um, they basically said no. They wrote me an email and they were like, dude, it's time to look at your shit. 
like this is a problem. Like this is like this is an addiction. This is problematic. Your decision making skills here and your habits and how you keep ending up in this situation. And regardless of whether I was making fifty thousand dollars a year or a hundred thousand dollars a year, I was always maxed out every month. Um, and you know, this is something I continue to struggle with. Like money is a really hard thing for me to wrap my head around. Um, especially now that I have like reliable, steady income with my job. It's like, I don't, I'm such an instant gratification gal. It's so hard for me to wrap my head around. Like, what's the point of having an abundant, what's the point of saving it up when there's all these fun things I could fucking spend it on or adventures I could have. Um, so I'm, it's a work in progress, but hit this financial rock bottom a little over a year ago. And my mom sent me the link to some financially focused therapists, which are a thing, which is fucking awesome. Because in general, and this is something I learned through my money healing journey, is that you kind of have two options if you're not doing well with money. Um, You can talk to a financial advisor or go to therapy, but the two don't really merge together. And so I started working with a woman named Rachel and totally changed my life. I really uh, confronted my shit. I was willing to take responsibility for it, uh, which was also a byproduct of the training I did. Like I was just willing to own my shit. And I started talking about it on TikTok. and why it worked so well was because I wasn't talking about it past tense. I was like, I am in my shit right now. I think I have a spending addiction. Don't know how to rein it in. I've no idea what my expenses are. I've never tracked my money. Like, um, I just took it to TikTok and it blew the fuck up. And I actually deleted that account a few weeks ago because it just, it's so far, it's already just so not a thing I'm engaged in or like passionate about anymore of like sharing that kind of information. But I mean, I had 70,000 followers and um, it was a really beautiful, beautiful community I created. I uh, really did a lot of big fucking work and, you know, it's... I was able to break a lot of habits of overdrafting bank accounts and maxing out cards, like doing all of these self-destructive money habits. Um, And, you know, one of the things I learned was like, it was very deeply tied to my self-love and my self-worth. And it continues to be. Um, I founded a community called the Money Healing Club, which I have since handed over to Rachel, the money therapist that I worked with. And she is running that. If you are interested, uh, you can go to moneyhealingclub.com. But yeah, I was just... um, I'm really good at sharing in the moment what's happening. And I think that that's why this episode has been put off and has been so difficult for me. It's just like, it feels, some of the stuff feels so raw that I'm about to get into that um, I wanted, I wanted to like be on the other side of it before I, before I shared it. But I think that my strength is actually sharing and the willingness to share in those uncomfortable moments and those uncomfortable things for the benefit of others and of, of humanity. And so, um, slowly started building a foundation. I spent last summer applying for a shit ton of jobs. Um, Nobody wanted to hire me in corporate. I have a weird entrepreneurial (laughs) background. And people are like, why is a founder, you know, looking for a job? It it just it did not pan out. Um, And I reached out to a woman who had gone on an awesome business retreat with. And I'm now the project director at a digital marketing agency in my vanilla day life which is super fun. I get to do a lot of the things I love, marketing, branding, bossing people around, um, and get paid to do that. It's really just like going for it. And my experience of seeking arrangements is 100%, maybe not 100, 90% extremely positive compared to vanilla normal dating. 
And I'm going to explain why. In general, the people that I've gone on on dates with there and that I've hooked up with through seeking arrangements have been in their 30s or 40s, generally not unattractive, extremely intelligent, successful, entrepreneurial. Some of them have, you know, maybe gone through a divorce in the past, so they're looking for something more casual, or maybe they want something more serious and they know exactly what they're looking for. I also do not want to speak for every person on there. This is my experience of seeking arrangements in Austin, Texas, which is a very entrepreneurial um, tech focused area with a lot of a lot of people and younger people. So I can't speak to it for everyone and everywhere. This is just my own personal experience. I just want to make that really clear because, you know, while I really do want other women to like hear my experience, I also, of course, want you to be very, very safe. And that's part of the reason why I'm sharing this, which so much comes up sharing this for some reason, but it's like, it's so important to me for you to know what's out there and to know how to be safe and how to vet and how I like go through that process, whether it's seeking or a different website. Um, actually really quickly, I'm just going to speak to that. My dating flow, I got to a point where I got so tired of all the conversation and messaging that once I felt like there was a connection with somebody and this could be seeking field, bumble, whatever, I moved to text and I have a FaceTime call. I make it so that it seems like I only have a few minutes hey, I've got something to do. I've got five minutes to chat so that you have an out because it's really awkward to get off of a FaceTime call with somebody when it's not a vibe. And I started FaceTiming people. It saves me a zillion fucking hours a year of dating energy. Um, I would say that out of the 10 people that I FaceTime, let's say, let's say I FaceTime 10 people, I will probably go on a first date with three of them. So it is saving me, what, seven hours of of dates? (laughs) Um, and there's just a lot of emotional energy that goes into dating, you know, um, getting all dressed up, getting kind of excited, meeting them, maybe not feeling it because it was just, you were looking at somebody through a few photos. So that is like my life dating hack is if there feels like there's a vibe, get on a FaceTime call first, say you have a few minutes, chat with them and then go from there. Um, and I'm happy to give you advice on how to send a text that if there is not a vibe, because it's also important that you communicate and don't ghost. Cause I used to do a lot of that as well. So, um, yeah, I basically implemented that in seeking as well. And it was just so different than I thought. So there is like, there are kind of two different ways that people do it on seeking. Somebody will have a monthly allowance and maybe meet up with them one time a week. Uh, Sex is yes, expected. That's the number one question I get when I tell my friends that I've done this is they're like, well, I would love that. I'd love to do that. But do you have to have sex with them? And it's like, I have very seldom, for various reasons in my past, have sure had sex with people that I maybe didn't want to or wasn't attracted to, but I don't do, that's not, that's not what I do anymore. That's not how I live my life. Um, And so I think that there was also a kink element involved in this for me because of my money scarcity and growing up in a financially unpredictable kind of world. um, There was... And, and also there's part of me that was starting to feel kind of like tired of the emotional investment of exploring kink on field and with strangers. And so it was just kind of fun and naughty and taboo and exciting and kinky for me to explore it all, explore dating basically with a monetary element. And so there are two ways people do that. 
There can be a monthly allowance where you meet up with the person once a week. And, you know, that that allowance depends, um, could be a thousand to four thousand to ten thousand dollars a month, depending on the person and what kind of dynamic you have. Um, or there's more like meet up, get money, that kind of thing as well. Um, it just depends on the person. And, you know, the, the warning I will share for younger women or people new to that world is that, and this is why I'm really, really interested. And I talk about this in my episode with Ayla, um, episode 12 is like, you have two of the most inequipped people ever to handle a negotiation or transaction like this. You have, in general, younger women in their in their 20s, there may be college, maybe want a little extra money. Um, and then you have older, wealthier men who are honestly, many of them have like gone through a divorce or like they're, they're this is their first time on the apps, ladies, <laughs> and it's been a while. So you have these two people and then you have this elephant in the room of, I don't want this to feel super transactional. Neither party like kind of feels that way on this website, yet it needs to happen. And hey, we're all here because of that, but we don't want to fucking talk about it. And so there's this big elephant in the room and then you kind of have to negotiate. Um, and so, you know, again, shoot me a DM. I'd be happy to help you if you are like actually in the midst of this. Um because it's just, it's complex. And then there can be worthiness stuff tied to it. If somebody's like, hey, do you want to get dinner? Like 200 bucks. And it's like, fuck no, I don't want, I want a thousand. I don't know. Like it just starts, to, you, you can't associate your worth with also what people say. But something I will say about dating on Seeking is that I still have two, two or three men in my life that I met through Seeking that are mentors in my life, that are these solid, strong daddy figures that are successful and wealthy and experienced and like people that I could call on if like shit went down, not, not financially, but just like in life. Like they just, they're these deep bonds that were created. And, um, and at the end of the day, like a lot of people that do see sex workers, I've heard this from many, are like craving deep connection. Sometimes they'll pay, you know, a sex worker or an escort like to talk because they want the human connection. And so there's really, I think, that element of that with sugar dating. And these men are very, very important to me. And a couple of the differentiating factors that I noticed dating men from seeking is it just felt like I was being treated how I fucking have always wanted to, which is communicative. I'm going to pick a restaurant. I'm going to pick you up if you feel comfortable with that. I'm going to drop you off. Otherwise, maybe I'll, you know, send you money for an Uber or send an Uber. I'm going to pick a really nice restaurant. I'm going to make a reservation. Um, we're going to talk about life and business. And uh, yeah, it was just like, oh, wow, this is actually really the kind of dynamic I want to have. And so, you know, there were moments where money was tough and I had experiences on seeking. It's not that I wouldn't say I'm not proud of them, where it was just kind of like, oh, like I don't want to be doing this personally from a place of scarcity. Um, that doesn't feel good to me. But it's really, it was a really fun like side hustle. And I'm not opposed to continuing to do it. I still have an account. I fuck around on it sometimes, but I, I haven't gone on a date from that website in a very, very long time. Um, because in general, most people on there are like, they're paying for uh, boundaries and 
uh, communication. It's many men who travel a lot for work and can't really be like fully invested in a relationship. And so as much as it's like the type of guy that I want to end up with, successful, tech, educated, emotionally intelligent, um, off, like, you know, I really am seeking a relationship in this chapter of my life. And that's not what a lot of people on there are looking for. Um, and I have an upcoming guest, uh, Gigi, who we will be talking a lot about sugar baby stuff, sex work stuff. So I'm excited to share that with you. Um, if you listen to this prior to our episode, please shoot me a DM with any questions you might have about this kind of stuff. Um, I could also do a Q&A episode. But you know, seeking arrangements looks the website, the the design of it looks just like Pornhub or like any of these shitty sex fucking related websites where I'm just like, can we get some more goddamn women involved in this? Um, because all of these companies, many of them are ran by men and they're not looking out for the women um, because the men are the one paying for the site, not the women. And so it's kind of like, you know, from a business perspective, they're like, how can we make money from the men and get more men on this website? But, you know, this is the tricky thing about sugar dating is I just want to get to a place with myself where I'm really accepting that I can be all of the things, that I can be a successful entrepreneur, that I can also have had and have money problems, and that I can also be admired and seen as fucking badass and sexy and also have, you know, done sugar baby dating. And 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 honestly, like when I talk about it with my friends or like anything like that behind closed doors, like I'm excited about it. I think it's fucking cool. I think it's a really unique gray area of the world of dating that more women should look into with safety and precaution, obviously always meet in a public place, talk about numbers ahead of time, that kind of thing. Um, But that it's actually just, it's been a really fun, positive part of my life. And I've brought some really amazing men into my world. Um, I know that there's so much more to share there, but you know, I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm sharing it. Like I said, at the beginning of this episode, it's important for me to be fully authentic in this podcast because I really want to highlight a lot of, uh, stories and, and, um, opinions of people. Um, and so it just feels really good to even, to even share that much and talk about it and, you know, I can anticipate, I also have an anxiety disorder, so I can anticipate negative perceptions or what if my mom heard this or what if so-and-so like I can, I can, but that is anxiety, the fear of the future unknown. And that I, I don't want that to rule my life because at the end of the day, sugar dating was and is fun and kinky and exciting for me. And um, I'm really, truly curious about building a seeking arrangements competitor that has a CEO or that has a female led executive team and like, fucking crushing it. Because the thing that I've noticed about power dynamics and seeking arrangements is that there is always some type of exchange at play. There's always fucking something the woman's with the guy that has the the hot woman, the hot young woman is with the old guy that has money. And they have this unspoken agreement. There's so many of these unspoken agreements and power dynamics and relationships of you're the provider, or there is this stability and safety and I'm hot. And like, that's our dynamic. And there are all of these unspoken dynamics in society 
And that's also just very human. Um, I think that a lot of relationships truly are transactional. People would just not be willing to admit that in their dynamic. And um, yeah, yeah, it's just fascinating. Um, I also highly suggest if you're listening to this and intrigued to go listen to the Alex Friedman episode um, with a scientist. It's, it's about like mating biology mating biology scientist if you search that in in the episodes i bet you could find it um it's like a three-hour episode all about like how we're biologically wired to to mate and seek out certain types of partners and you know i feel like a little weird because i'm like this could totally sound fucking anti-feminist and i'm a fucking feminist but like it's in our biology to want the person that makes us feel the most resourced. That is, that is not rocket science, y'all. That is, that is the strongest dude in the village that has the biggest hut so that we're the safest. It's, it's, it's a survival mechanism and it's part of our society. And I, I'm just really curious if there's an opportunity to come into the market with a product, a tech product, a website, that can kind of normalize this even more. And I have some ideas and I've worked on some stuff and some prototypes. Um, but yeah, that is, that is my little, my little sugar baby adventure. And um, I think that probably the best thing to do for that would be some type of Q and a episode. Once I get some questions about it. Um, okay. Let's go into my next vulnerability trauma dump here. So where I'm at now in life um So I have also really struggled with body dysmorphia, as many humans do. And no matter what I have done, uh, my weight's always fluctuated here and there. But I've always just really wanted my freaking tummy gone. And I just kind of got fed up. And um, the place where I get Botox and filler was like, we know a place for Ozempic, you can order it, which is like the celebrity weight loss drug shot thing. And, you know, I, I'm an impulsive gal. One day I just said, fuck it. I'm tired. I want my appetite reduced. I don't want to be so like consumed and obsessed with all these thoughts. So I ordered Ozempic. So this past six months, up until about a month ago, I have been on Ozempic, the weight loss drug, and it worked. I mean, my appetite disappeared overnight. I stopped obsessing about food, stopped thinking about food, but it was pretty extreme to the point where I like food sounded gross and I didn't eat and it was like hard to eat. And if I did eat, it wasn't healthy because it was the only thing that sounded good. Um, but it fucking worked. And what you do with Ozempic is over time, your dose slowly increases and increases. And, um, and I had heard like little inklings or rumors about mental health related side effects, Uh, but you know, I, I wasn't sure it it wasn't a big enough thing for me to consider that I was so eager to lose weight and women will do fucking anything to lose weight. And so kind of out of fucking nowhere, but yet also gradually as my dose increased, um, I started feeling really heavy and depressed and down really, really down. And I hadn't experienced depression much in my life. I'm much more of an anxiety gal. Um, But the last time I experienced depression was when I was sick after that period in Nepal. What was tricky about this was it was kind of the perfect storm because (laughs) it was the perfect storm 
because I was so in denial, just like I was with the money thing. I was so in denial because I, I, I wanted to lose weight. Like that's how deeply ingrained this shit can be for women and how much it ingrained it was for me. Like I didn't want to think that the most obvious association fucking possible was the correct one, which is started Ozempic, increased dose, depression appeared out of nowhere and got to the point of suicidal ideation. Um, which is hard to say, but it was my energy was so low. I was so tired. I was so depressed. And, and then, yeah, this, this kind of suicidal ideation started of like, what is the fucking point? What am I doing here? What am I doing with the podcast? Why does any of it matter? Like it got so heavy and dark and I was not in, I was not at the wheel, man, something heavy and dark was. And, um, I just like really didn't want to admit it because I was losing weight so fast and it felt so good to look at my body and, and, and feel a certain way. And one day it was like, you know, kind of like the first time I ever Googled, Hey, do I have a drinking problem? Actually, I'm going to go back a little bit. Um, and this is also hard for me to say on air or publicly, but, um, and I don't like the word relapse, but I experimented what would it recently Uh, October 13th would have been four years sober for me from alcohol. And over the summer, what I think also associated to the Ozempic and the depression and the things it was doing to my brain chemistry, I got really curious about drinking, wondering if I could, quote, handle it again, because I had done so much personal development and so much work on myself. And I'd seen some friends that had kind of kind of successfully reintegrated or so I thought alcohol into their lives after sobriety and and I just went for it it was slow it was a slow progression and um you know I've uh, it's been about a month since I drank last but it was I'm, I'm in a place of it with it now where I don't feel shame about it and I don't feel like I wish it had never happened because at first I was really like wow you almost had four years like what the fuck were you thinking just so mean to myself and now it's kind of like you know with the thoughts I was having about drinking and where my mental health was at I just think it was fucking inevitable that I was going to get curious and try it out again and man alcohol is a trip for me for me it feels like instant anxiety relief. It feels like an instant way to connect with people on a deeper level, instant way to relax and transition out of work. Um, and just to let go, let go. And nothing super bad happened. And that's something that I've, you know, I, I have talked a lot about with about with other friends that have been on sobriety journeys is we have this perception that it has to be a rock bottom, it has to be a DUI or a incident, um, or the final hangover from hell. And that's not the, not the case. If it's not working, it's not fucking working. And that's how it was for me. Um, and I just am not capable of managing any hangovers. Like I love feeling productive in the morning. I love feeling energized and just so good. And, um, you know, yeah, it it was hard. um, And I have sought support in multiple ways in my life and told people that are close to me. But I've not really shared about it on Instagram, because I just haven't been ready. 
But so yeah, all of this is kind of happening at once. I also um, had feelings that I'm still navigating to be perfectly honest for someone. And it was just the perfect little storm. But Ozempic was the main thing. And one day, a month and a half ago, two months ago, I googled Ozempic uh, suicidal ideation, Ozempic depression, and I watched a YouTube video by Selena Spooky Boo. <laughs> She's a famous TikToker and does haunted house shit. And I just like love her. And her video popped up. And she was taking it for diabetes. And it fucked her up mentally. And I started down the rabbit hole in the Reddit threads. And I started realizing like, whoa, Ozempic is this is a much bigger thing much bigger thing um, in terms of the percentage of women that are experiencing suicidal ideation with this. And I posted a TikTok about it that went viral. And I mean, so many women were commenting saying this happened to me too, or they were reporting other issues or rooms, to, uh, trips to the emergency room for their stomach or different organs. And it was just so intense. Um, and basically, I, I watched that video of hers, and I threw away the shots that I had left of Ozempic. And it's been very honestly difficult because I am gaining weight steadily back. My appetite is back, especially with like being back in early sobriety. Like food is my go-to for that comfort, for that instant relief and dopamine and comfort. And um, generally, my go-to things are the food or the shopping. <laughs> and so like those activate dopamine releases in me that make me feel com temporarily comforted and then put me into a shame spiral. And so that it's been tricky. It's been tricky navigating early sobriety again, plus gaining weight, plus just life. <laughs> so that that's really where I'm at right now. Um, on that day, my last hangover, I called a coach of mine from the past and hired her. Uh, so I have six months of mindset coaching with somebody who I really trust and admire and really knows me and knows my bullshit very well. And I just, you know, it, it wasn't like a rock bottom. It was just one of those days where I was done. I was fucking done with how I'd been living my life. And I called her up and I said, I've been drinking. I'm not into this shit. I want to be done. I want accountability. I want, I want not this. And, um, you know, it's only been about a month since that happened. And I'm being really gentle on myself because I was sober for so long that I kind of thought just stopping drinking again, I'd go right back to that place of being very comfortable in it. But the reality is I still have to be kind of aware and careful. It's not about like, it's not really like I can, not that I can't, it's not that I want to go out to noisy places or stimulating places or bars. Like I'm a very sensitive soul. I'm an introvert. I think I said this before, like when I go home after a podcast day of simply four hours of being fucking present and social, I literally do nothing the rest of the day. Like my brain is just a sensitive little place. Um, if you relate to that, highly suggest you check out uh, the book, The Highly Sensitive Person. So anyways, I'm just being really um, gentle with myself and uh, taking care of myself, but then also trying to be aware and seeing where my habits to chase extremes, whether that be money, sex, um, 
food, whatever these, these releases are, I'm trying to be really self-aware. I'm like letting myself comfort myself and also trying to be aware if things are spiraling or headed in a bad direction. Um, so yes, I have an addictive personality. I love extremes. And, and somebody said, somebody in the sobriety community says that addiction is actually compulsive comfort seeking. And I think that's so beautiful. I think that's such a beautiful and accurate way to look at a negative habit is, is as humans, we really want comfort. We really want relief from whatever it is we're suffering from. And, um, you know, tying it all kind of back together, I have found exploring kink and BDSM, like it's fun and it's a part of my life. And I'm a fucking grandma 99% of the time. I am in bed. I'm at home. I'm with my three animals. I've always got fuzzy things and blankets and candles going. And like, that's my life. So I don't know quite how to say this. It's almost like how I, how, how I see myself, how I position myself is not like a lover of BDSM and a practitioner of all of these things in my home life. I mean, I'm sure I'll have great kinky sex with whoever I date next, but like, I am just curious. I find human nature so curious, specifically dating, romance, sex. And ever since I was a kid, I was fascinated with like sex work, I guess, like just in my mind. Like when I was young, I would have these weird like dreams or visions of like brothels. I don't know, this sounds so bizarre, but I I kind of believe in past lives. And I just have always been really curious about it. Um, and, and my intention is just like, I just want to show what's behind the curtain for everyone. I want everyone to see like men, most men jack off. Most men watch porn. Most men are very sexually motivated and horny <laughs> little beings. Most women are, I don't even know what to say about most women. We're just goddesses, but <laughs> We are such a sexually charged world and species. And so to not talk about it is so bizarre to me. And that is my intention for Sex Talk Radio is not to be an advocate of I love all of these things and these techniques and these modalities. I want to pull back the fucking curtain. I want to pull back the curtain to what is going on in everyone's fucking Google searches or Pornhub searches, because we are all curious. And I didn't mean to make it sound like it's just men. I've just learned a lot that men have an insanely, in general, strong, high sex drive. Like, they are these primal beings. And so it's actually probably really challenging for them to push that aside, to pretend that that's not real or that that doesn't exist. Um, and that's why I think there's like this kind of missing link in our world in terms of like normalizing sex work is it's like, I think it should be really okay and destigmatized for a man if he just wants to get laid to do that. Because the disconnect for me in my vanilla dating life has been guys trying to meet up as soon as possible from Bumble or Hinge to meet up to kind of love ball me and pretend they like me so that they can get laid and then ghost me because they're horny. And that doesn't need to be happening. And so my goal is to pull back the curtain for you guys and be as vulnerable as I feel safe and comfortable doing about my own life. Um, because these dialogues get to be happening so much more than they are. And I just want to say I really appreciate all of you guys. Um, it, 
sex talk radio for me feels so easy and aligned. Like I've been doing, you know, viral TikTok social media strategy for years. I knew it would take off, but I had no idea that it would be quite this powerful. And I had no idea that I would be able to like get to a point where it's kind of breaking even and I can record more episodes. And so I just want to say thank you if you're listening to this. And I really, really appreciate you. Um, If you are a woman or non-binary person listening to this, I would love to have you in the sexy society. Um, You can find that in my in my link in bio, it is free. Um, It will be forever free if you join before the end of this year 2023. And we have bi weekly live with podcast guests and people that don't live in Austin, which is the only place I film. And I just want it to be more of this, more of pulling back the curtain, more conversation, safe places for you to ask questions. So please come join that. If you really love me, please leave a review. You can leave a word, a review with words on Apple or just a five star, whatever star you want. Not telling you what star to leave on Spotify would be absolutely fantastic. When the blowjob episode went viral, a lot of people listened to it that thought it was going to be, I don't know, whatever they thought, and like a zillion people listened to it. So I got some negative reviews from that. But um, anyways, I love you guys. I appreciate you, my little sexy squad. And thank you for thank you for listening. And thank you for seeing me.